The scripture reading today is from the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. You can find it printed on page 10 of your worship folder. A reading from Luke chapter 24. On the first day of the week at early dawn, the women came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified, and on the third day rise again? Then they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and all, and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other woman with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed like to them as an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the little cross by themselves. Then he went home amazed at what had happened. And now a reading from Acts chapter 10. Then Peter began to speak to them. I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of all. That message spread through Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John announced. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. How he went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses to that, all that that he did both in Judea and Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree but God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses, and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach by the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Let us pray. Gracious God, meet us now, however we find ourselves in this room. Help us to believe that you have seen to it that we have made our way here for this moment. Help us to believe that you are present, that you are inviting us into your very life. And so help us to be present to that presence, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Doris Olson was a pillar of the church. She took her young children to Easter on Sunday, and in her words, the pastor was, quote, too smart for his own good. He preached about spring and new life and baby rabbits, but never said a word about the resurrection. 
The minute he pronounced the benediction, I marched my children out the door and across the street to First Lutheran, where I knew they would at least get Jesus out of the tomb. Alleluia. I didn't see enough of these children saying, I said alleluia. There we go. Yes. Let's be sure to get Jesus out of the tomb. Let's hear it for Doris, y'all. She gets it. And when it comes to Easter, the women always do. Just a quick rejoinder to the duh disciples in this story. Who, when the women, the first proclaimers of the resurrection, told them the tomb was empty, said in reply, Leros, which means that it's the modern day equivalent of B.S. Have to be careful with words. <laughs> women being mansplained, women not being believed, again, but I digress. So to follow the examples of these women, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, Doris Olson, we definitely get Jesus out of the tomb at City Church. We proclaim it, we sing about it, we rent out Davies Symphony Hall and we try to blow the doors off. And we do this because, honestly, we don't have a better explanation of what happened in the first century. 2,000 years ago, when hordes of people were suddenly making the audacious claim that a man rose again from the dead and appeared to them when it could be so easily debunked. It would be like me telling you that I won the Heisman Trophy in 1983, when in reality... All I did as a third-string quarterback at the University of Florida was set records in pregame warm-ups. I was awesome in pregame warm-ups. You could debunk that pretty quickly. Yet hundreds of people were claiming Jesus rose from the dead when it could be easily proven false. Why on earth, why on earth would this peasant rabbi with no political power, no economic power, no socioeconomic power, and then the followers themselves didn't have a whole lot of power. What on earth happened suddenly to turn the world upside down? Well, we say the resurrection. God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating everything Jesus ever said or taught, inaugurating a new creation in the midst of the old. That is all good resurrection theology, everybody. So we get Jesus out of the tomb at City Church. But once we get Jesus out of the tomb, what then? What do we actually do with resurrection? How does it go from information to liberation? I don't believe we really understand resurrection, to be honest. Unless we're tracing it through to liberation and its liberating power. So... To answer that question, let's take instruction from three teachers in these texts who might get us from information to liberation. Jesus goes first, and then we hear from Peter, and then the angels as well. Thought experiment. What would you do if you were in Jesus' place? You had been betrayed. You had been 
executed in the most publicly humiliating way possible. You have been lied about. You have had all manner of evil perpetrated against you physically, emotionally. And suddenly, three days later, you're alive with a body that apparently can go through walls that's invincible. What would you do to those who had mistreated you? To those friends who had betrayed you? Be honest, people. What would you do with that? A well-known national leader wrote in one of his books, my motto in life is, Always get even. When somebody screws you, screw them back in spades. Now, we can claim that we hate that kind of rhetoric. And I get that. While we have also ourselves spent nights contemplating how we might get even, if we're honest. Rehearsing through conversations that we've had and wish we'd said just the right thing. And if it comes back up again, I'm going to know exactly what I'm going to say. Relishing the opportunity. How much of our energy, if we are honest, is spent replaying and rehearsing? It's sadly part of the human condition. I hope you know what a waste of time it is. Jesus did not retaliate. Jesus continued to do what he was doing before he was killed. Jesus practiced what he preached in the Sermon on the Mount. Return evil with good, hatred with love. Because screw them back in spades and the golden rule of Jesus are mutually exclusive. Jesus, after his resurrection, actually, if you'll look at it, he just went around forgiving everyone and everything. He makes breakfast for those who betrayed him on the side of a, of a beach where they could just come in and he made breakfast and just loved them. He invited those who doubted him. Say, look, touch my hands. Put your hand in my side of my battered body, but resurrected body. He personified grace over and over again. A 7th century theologian, and what a great name, Maximus the Confessor, proclaimed that Jesus, is invi Jesus invites us into, quote, an entirely new way of being in the world. Because that way of being is actually the path of liberation for yourself and for the world. It's a path forged by a brown-skinned Palestinian Jew from the first century under the oppression of military occupation that identified with the weak and the poor because he was weak and poor himself, the outsider, the outcast because he was an outcast himself who has something to say to us from that social location to liberate our way of being in the world. One of my favorite movies and whenever I do this, I always date myself. Because there'd be a number of you go, what? I've never heard of that one. Uh, many years ago, as good as it gets, Jack Nicholson plays Melvin Udall, a man who really has become incredibly miserable for many years. And a new relationship with a woman played by Helen Hunt threatens his independence. And in frustration, he shouts to Greg Kinnear, playing the part of Simon Bishop. He says, 
She's evicted me from my life. And with perfect comedic timing that I do not possess, Kinnear, his character responds, did you really like it that much? Has the striving for success, the frantic pace, the obsession with accumulation, the fastidious rule-keeping, the love that, if you were honest, is a codependent need for love, the making of a name for yourself, the secret lust to get even or to show them, whoever them is in that sentence, is it bringing you life? Or is it, as the angel said, looking for the living among the dead? Jesus invites us to be liberated into a new life, a life of being fully you. His resurrection is, is his way of, God's way of saying, yes, this is what it looks like. When, when you live a life rooted in my way of love, liberation from your smallness, of a life filled with envy and grudges and egocentricity to a largeness of life marked by love, forgiveness, and mercy. Peter also has a word of liberation for us in this. And what we learn from Peter is after personal liberation, there has to be tribal liberation. It's a lesson it took Peter a few weeks, months to learn. Apparently it takes all of us time to learn this. Because as, Peter, as far as Peter is concerned, when he looks into that empty tomb, wherever Jesus is and whatever he is going to be up to, Peter hasn't figured that out at all. But what he does know is that whatever it is, it is 100% for him and his tribe. And no one else on God's green earth. It's really important to hear this earliest Christianity, and I mean the earliest Christianity, like right now in this story and the, the weeks and months to come, earliest Christianity, according to the apostles' interpretation of Scripture, excluded 99% of humanity. That whatever God was up to in, in Jesus, it was for their tribe. And this is why I'm grateful for the second reading so eloquently done by Team Lion, who read so beautifully. From the book of Acts. Peter is fresh off of what could be called a contemplative breakthrough that essentially had him in a dreamlike state, wherein God taught him that God's love in Jesus extends far beyond his Jewish tribe. This really only perplexed Peter at first. So then God sends a few Gentiles for Peter to get to know. Because holding on to an idea that excludes a group of people because they are different than you is much harder to do when those people have a name and a face and a story and are not an issue, which they never were to begin with, but rather like you, are just human beings trying to live in peace. There's an old Jewish saying, an enemy is someone whose story you do not know. I've had the privilege of taking two trips to Israel-Palestine, spending a lot of time in the West Bank listening to stories of courageous peacemaking that never makes the headlines. 
We listen to a group, for instance, called Parents Circle. If you want to look this up online, it's theparentscircle.org, which brings together people, Palestinians, both Christians and Muslims, and Jews who have lost a loved one to the conflict, normally, usually a child. And they bring them together to hear one another's stories and to their shock become beloved friends. In every instance, they say, I'd never actually talked to a Palestinian or a Jew before. Until now. And they're just like me. Their grief and my grief are now mixed with one another. And together we are healing by choosing to love. Liberation. This is what leads Peter to say earlier in chapter 10, God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. Mind you, Peter had scriptures he could point to that would tell him there are people who are profane and unclean. But now Peter has to go back and rethink all of that in the light of Jesus. Which has led him to this momentous moment that was read here just a moment again, a moment ago, when Peter said, I truly understand that God shows no partiality. I am quite sure that when that came out of Peter's mouth, he was internally saying, I cannot believe I just said that. What just came out of my mouth? The truth is what came out of his mouth. Peter, in those words, I believe, forever hallows the nature of faith as always evolving into greater love, greater compassion, greater inclusion. We continually shrink the circle of God's love, and God will just keep on going, loving everything and everywhere, and invite you to catch up. Real talk. And frankly, some of you really need to hear this because it's actually a great act of courage for you to be in this room. And you did hear it from me. From Gentile inclusion that we're reading about here, to slavery, from our understanding of the cosmos, to women's rights, from interracial marriage to divorce, to how we love our LGBTQ siblings, the church, has a long list of we were wrongs in our history. And this history of correction should remind us that our chief virtue needed when we interpret Scripture is a loving humility that is willing always to hear Jesus say, you heard it say, but I say unto you. Peter, because of the resurrection, is liberated from his tribalism because as Rachel Held Evans says, what makes the gospel offensive isn't who it keeps out, but who it lets in. And so the angels have a word of liberation as well. We might call it a tool for liberation. And it's simply this, the word remember. The angels say, remember how he told you. You know, we use our memories for all sorts of things, often that harm us. We use them to keep ourselves locked in unforgiveness, to keep score toward ourselves or toward others. We use them to relish the times that we did really great, 
to puff up our ego, and remember to post it on social media, as one does. In the traumas that we hold in our bodies, our memories become something we wish we could shut off altogether. So the angels want you to use your memory to remember what Jesus said would happen. He told you would happen. And now to remember that death could not hold him. And to remember now the open secret humming beneath all created things. Death is not the end. To remember that the systems and structures of this world that bring death to your life in big ways and small will not stand. In the resurrection, a different kind of power has been unleashed into the world. A power that's desperately needed. Desperately needed in this world right now. As Kelly Brown Douglas puts it in her amazing book, Stand Your Ground, Black Bodies and the Justice of God, God's power, unlike human power, is not a master race kind of power that diminishes the life of another so that others might live. God's power respects the integrity of all human bodies and the sanctity of all life. This is a resurrecting power, never expressing itself to the humiliation or denigration of another. And so, if this morning you are bowed down by self-doubt or self-hatred to this Jesus' resurrection power says, I have already lifted you up and secured your identity and your worth. You are not damaged goods. You are my beloved child. And together we will walk with dignity. That is your deepest identity. If this morning you were entombed by grief, or laid low by loss or fear or trauma. To this, Jesus' resurrection power says, those traumas, those wounds, that anxiety, that depression, that evil visited upon you, I see you, and it is not your fault. And it will not have the last word. Together we can heal. If this morning you find yourself entombed by loneliness, in need of community, to this Jesus says, I have already secured your place in a living human family. You are not alone. Reach out your hand and find them all around you right now. This community invites you to be a part of it. This resurrection community called City Church of San Francisco is, extends its welcome to all without qualification and invites you into it to spread resurrection love to all of San Francisco. Liberation. Okay, I know this is a pretty outlandish thing to believe. I mean, honestly, dead people tend to stay dead. Yes, they tend to stay dead. Both then and now. The Gospels don't explain the resurrection, but I'd argue the resurrection explains the Gospels. And maybe why we're here today, 2,000 years later. It explains this church that I am so privileged to pastor, full of radical Jesus followers, who deliver meals to feed the poor, 
that visit people in jail, that marches in protest to declare that black lives matter, that immigrants matter, that women matter, that demand justice for all, that takes risks to make room for everyone to belong. We do this together because, to quote Andre Lord, without community, there is no liberation. And I know believing resurrection is scary. If it's true, I lose control of my life. That's scary. But also, if true, can you imagine a better idea than giving your life to a God who brings life out of death? Life out of death. Life out of death. To quote Richard Rohr, my favorite Franciscan priest, the first faith question that every person is asking is not, is Jesus God? But can God be trusted? Is God for us? The resurrection is saying, yes. God can be trusted. God is turning our crucifixions into life. That's some of the best news I can proclaim. So, we're in this amazing space. Let's proclaim it together. Let's make some noise in this room. I say he is risen. You say alleluia. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, help us to see this morning that resurrection is not an edict or a summons but an invitation to know that death is not the end, that you can be trusted, that you see us, and you have resurrection plans for every created thing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.